0: May this be in the name of Jesus, the living Lord. Amen. It's delightful to be here, and I'm grateful for the liturgical hospitality and welcome involved. I won't bore you with too long an explanation of why I find myself in this place, but suffice it to say that one of my tasks in the wider Anglican Communion is that I chair the Board of Governors, the International Board of Governors of what's called the Anglican Centre in Rome, which is a kind of embassy for the whole Anglican Communion in the Eternal City, a place of encounter, hospitality, study and connection. And we have an international board which from time to time meets in other parts of the world where we connect with local churches and indeed, let's be honest, with kind benefactors. And so we've been here this week for a two and a half day meeting. And um, I was very kindly, thanks to the Dean and the Bishop, given the opportunity before travelling home tomorrow to be let loose on you today. It is the Feast of Christ the King, the last Sunday of the liturgical year, a Sunday when, as it were, we sum it all up, contemplating the consummation of all things in Christ, the enthronement of Christ in glory, the contrast between the throne of grace that is the cross and the eternal heavenly throne, all of that. It's a day of celebration and of completion and of consummation before next Sunday it all starts again at the beginning of Advent. And of course we say to ourselves we have travelled a long way in our discipleship since we found ourselves here this time last year, which is the whole point of the liturgical year. Anyway, interestingly enough there's an ecumenical dimension to the Feast of Christ the King because it very much derived from the Roman Catholic revisiting of the shape of the liturgy after Vatican II, and it was considered appropriate, joyful, to have a feast like this at the end of the Christian year. It hadn't previously figured in the Anglican way of doing things, and so in a piece of receptive ecumenism, we borrowed it and we enjoy it. Except I find myself congenitally uncomfortable with the language of monarchy. I can't think all that easily sometimes of king as an entirely helpful metaphor into the world of God, although I know I'm veering into ignorant heresy in saying that. But nevertheless, the whole idea of monarchs and hereditary right and thrones and crowns is not quite where I was brought up, as it were. You and I live in republics. We dispensed with monarchy as a matter of principle. You managed to dispense. I say this in the context of today's good relationships, I should say, with those who have monarchs. But you dispensed with a king based in London in the 18th century. It took us until the beginning of the 20th century to do the same thing. So, I'm not good at crowns, monarchs and thrones, except that I look in the mirror and I say to myself, aren't you foolish to think you know nothing of thrones, because you probably sit in more of them than anybody else? (laughs) And so, I turn my mind not to the throne of kings, but to the throne of bishops. And in a sense, the word throne, which is part of the very being of cathedrals, is the lingua franca of the people of God, especially those who were Anglicans. And so instead of, as it were, looking down my nose at monarchs, I should look at myself and examine what I have learned about thrones over the years. Now, I can claim a unique distinction in the annals of Christendom. I think I can say, and I should be in a book of records, that I have been enthroned more than any bishop ever. I have a diocese, Ireland is a strange place. Uh, We have dioceses which are conglomerates of ancient medieval dioceses, and the ancient cathedrals still hold places of honour and regional gathering. They may not always function as cathedrals in the regionals, in, in the liturgical sense but they have chairs and that's what matters and in those places bishops are landed when they begin their new ministry and so I was for 16 years bishop of a diocese with six cathedrals, which makes no sense at all but there it is and then I was translated to another diocese with six cathedrals. So, I have uh, in my lifetime been placed in 12 thrones. I could almost judge the tribes of Israel at this stage. (laughs) And sometimes I get embarrassed about all these liturgical inaugurations and enthronements and being placed in yet another chair. And uh, I. And I I, I rejoice in the relative simplicity of the chair over there. And I think of some of the thrones I've sat in with their elevated situation and their glorious canopies and their velvet surrounds and their lovely cushions and the curtains you can pull to fall asleep during somebody else's sermon. (laughs) Having said that, I have over the years asked myself, what would be the perfect throne if I had the chance to create it? I was a little bit inspired by one of my present cathedrals. Some of you may know the west of Ireland. I have a cathedral in a place called Kilfenora. Kilfenora is precisely nowhere. It's in the middle of Moorland, near the cliffs of Moher. There isn't an Anglican within miles of it. But we still have a cathedral with a few medieval carvings and a chair. But the most inspiring Episcopal chair I have ever seen was on another ecumenical jaunt when I was visiting the old Catholic cathedral in Bonn in Germany. The old Catholics are an interesting group of national churches who parted company with Rome, mostly over papal infallibility in the 19th century. They exist in various countries on the European mainland, and they have long been in full communion with the Anglicans, including, of course, with the Episcopal Church. They're quite small, but they're a significant group of people. And some years ago, I was in the old Catholic cathedral in Bonn, and I decided to try out the Episcopal chair when nobody was looking. (laughs) And at last, I found the perfect throne. For from afar, it is a thing of great beauty, clearly crafted with intricate attention to detail by local craftspeople using local materials. From afar, looking up the nave of the cathedral, it catches the eye. It draws the worshipper's attention to the worship over which the bishop presides. It emphasises the role of teaching and speaking to the people. It says all that a presider's chair should do in terms of visibility and beauty, but try sitting in it. It is virtually impossible. If you sit in it... The seat part of the throne is on a descending gradient, so you have to keep pushing yourself back in case you, get, you begin to slumber and slide off. No drawing the curtains during the sermons of others there. and Furthermore, there is a knot in the wood deliberately crafted so that it hits the bishop's posterior in his or her efforts to find comfort. You cannot sit comfortably in this throne. Beautiful as it looks from afar, and it is a reminder to the occupant, never settle comfortably into the throne. Always be somewhat ill at ease with yourself, and remember you may have to speak uncomfortable things to a disturbed world. So there was the perfect throne saying something through its combination of gnarled discomfort for the occupant and clear beauty from afar. It says something about the gnarled wood yet the distant perspective of utter beauty that characterized the true throne of grace which is the cross. And in a way I might stop there looking at my watch, but I'll go on and say one more thing, if you can put up with it. It's often struck me when you're a bishop, you're put solemnly into the throne and then you only appear in the cathedral from time to time. That's why we have wonderful teams of deans and so on. Others really look after the liturgical round of the cathedral and the throne largely sits empty while the bishop is off being wonderful somewhere else. And the empty chair, most of the time, in the cathedral, actually says something powerful, as it simply sits there. And we all know the power of empty chairs. As you gather, I know this week for Thanksgiving, or as we gather again for Christmas, there are always family members who can't be there. And it's often very appropriate to leave an empty chair where they might be to remind yourself of the meaning and the value of their presence. And in a similar way, the empty chair, the empty cathedral, the empty throne that dominates cathedrals makes its own statement. Because although the bishop is called to be in himself or herself a beacon for the church in certain matters, the bishop's calling is a microcosm and focus for the calling of all. So what the throne says, it says to everybody. The bishop is meant to teach the faith. So are the people of God, who in their everyday conversations are meant to be intelligent and imaginative about why they believe what they do. The bishop is meant to preside over the magnetic beauty of the liturgy. But everybody who comes to the liturgy is meant to create part of the atmosphere of magnetic participative beauty which draws in the curious outsider. The bishop is meant to speak from the chair powerfully, prophetically and courageously into a world that is often in need of a disturbing message, but then so is everybody else as you endeavour to give an account that is reasonable of the hope that is in you and how that Hope connects with the culture of the world we know. In other words, the empty chair reminds everybody, as opposed to the bishop, that almost they should be sitting in it. So we are all called to climb, metaphorically at least, into the empty chair to do its work and to enthrone ourselves. So there's no need to shy from the language of kingship. It can be the destiny, duty, and glory of us all, provided our thrones connect us to the fabric and the power of the cross, which is paradoxically where all the ladders of kingship should properly start. Amen.